Oh, so much of what we've been talking about in this series is just really, really hard. And so today I want to get you excited. It's been so hard, I feel like I need to point ahead and get you excited about what you could expect to see in your life as you start to recognize and repent of idols of the heart. Not just any heart, your heart. As you start to recognize and repent. It's not enough to just see it and say, oops, there it is. But to say, I'm willing to do the hard work of repenting of that. And I'm telling you, we're just scratching the surface on this important subject of the heart. So I want to encourage you again. Get a copy of Gospel Treason. This week, read chapter 12 and 13. That will unpack further some of the fruit and some of the things you could get excited about. Download the study guide if you haven't yet from my website, bradbigney.com. And think, pray, wrestle, dig. Here's why. So that this would go from a series of information on Sunday, that's great, to life transformation on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so today I want to hit pause on some of the pain you might be feeling. It's painful. It's hard. It's not fun, this process. I want to hit pause on some of the pain and get you excited about some of the incredible fruit that you can expect to see in your life as you head down this path, listen to me, and try to form a new habit. Oh, listen to me. This is not natural. This will be have to be intentional and brand new so it'll feel awkward. Just keep doing it till it doesn't feel awkward. As you try to form a new habit of seeing your own sin. What? First. Your own sin is worse. Your own sin is what you need to be working on most as you start with your heart. Not what's wrong with her? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with the world? No, what's going on inside of me. What am I wanting? What am I clinging to? What have I built my world around? What have I built a fortress around and I'm defending, promoting, treasuring, prizing? I've pushed it up onto the altar of my heart and I want everyone else to get on board with this also. What's going on inside of me? Listen to me. When you start to live and think this way, some brand new things start to happen. Here's the first, number one. Number one is some of you have been looking for this and wondering what's going on. You'll start to really get free for maybe the very first time. Maybe you're that person that's like, I don't understand. I don't, I don't experience the kind of freedom and joy and peace I thought I was supposed to have as a Christian. You might start to experience freedom like you've never had for the very first time. And it's the kind of freedom that Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me show you what, what we're digging into. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Look at me. You're not the first Christians to live in a hard, dark, broken world. We can be so guilty of that. So many have gone before us. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses now. Let us lay aside. Oh, look at me. Who's got to do this? Is it automatic? I wish when you got saved, boom, everything is shed. 
all that you were clinging to, all that was hanging you up, all that was messing you up as a human being, all your past, all the baggage, all the bad habits, all the wrong thinking. No, it doesn't just, but you now have spirit of God living in you, people of God around you, word of God alive to you and direct access to his throne to begin to lay a, will it be hard? Oh, will it be two steps forward and one step back? But oh, it's so worth it. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Listen to me, that word weight right there in the Greek is a word that means encumbrance, mass, bulk. Think tumor, think medical, right? When we go and something's not right, something's going on and they... They take a scan or an MRI and they find a what? A mass. Is that ever good news? No, it's not. Does it hinder you? Are there implications? Are there consequences? Does it change how you live? That's what he's saying here. Lay aside every mass or encumbrance that so easily ensnares us. And that word ensnare matches very well this metaphor of tumor. Because the word ensnare there means to entangle and begin to wrap around. It was a Greek word that meant all the way around, all the way around, all the way around. Oh, what do you know about cancerous tumors? Does it stay right in that spot? It begins to what? Grow, spread, wrap around. Oh, you got to lay aside every weight, that mass, that bulk, that tumor that maybe you've had there your whole life that is wrapped around you. And you went there because you thought it was, would please you. You went there because you thought it was security. You went there because you thought it would satisfy you at some point in your life. But you thought it would serve you. And now it has enslaved you. It's wrapped around you. That ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, right there, he's giving us a metaphor that captures what the Christian life's about. The Christian life is not comprised of sitting and waiting for Christ to return. It's a race. We're running. Effort has to be put forth. It's going to be hard. It'll be arduous. You'll get tired at times. Therefore, if you're going to run, I ran track, the 880. I wasn't great, but I did it in high school. Oh, my goodness. If you're going to run, here's one thing that they told us all the time. You better know where to fix your eyes. Look at what he says next. Looking unto Jesus. Oh, they told us, you cannot run, and you know your girlfriend's in the stands, and you're trying to wave and run. Will not work. Oh, here's the thing I was guilty of. I had no girlfriend. Is trying to see where that next closest guy is. You cannot run looking behind you. You cannot. They would tell us to fix your sight on a point out there ahead and just stay with it. Stay with it. Guess what? He tells us what to fix our eyes on. There's a point out there. It's not here. It's not your marriage. It's not your kids. It's not your circumstances. It's not your health. Looking unto, say it. Say it louder. Jesus. Some translations actually say fixing our eyes on Jesus. And here's why. I love that. Because in the Greek there were multiple words for, for, for see or look. The normal word is just blepo. Look at that. This is a word he chose to use, aphoreo, that literally means to turn away from one thing you've been looking at to intentionally fix your gaze on something else instead. He understands we're guilty of. Before you come to faith in Christ, 
Most of us have had our eyes fixed on something else. We're creatures who want to fixate on something. We want to make much of something. So he realizes whatever you've been making much of prior to Christ, it will not be automatic. You'll keep doing that if you're not careful. So he says, don't. Turn away from that to look at this instead. Looking unto Jesus. Which again, I want you to bring into focus here. This series is not just about killing idols. It's about cultivating intimacy with Christ. You only know who you look at a lot. And who you listen to. And who you spend time with. Who you fixate on. That's who you begin to know. And guess what? You become more like them. Who you hanging out with, you're going to become like them. Who you listening to, you'll become like them. Who do you look to constantly, you will become like them. He's like looking unto Jesus. This is not a stick your head in the sand. I've got to look at other things in this world. But I tell you what, I start each day by looking to Jesus. If, if you're wondering, how would I obey that verse? By spending time in God's word, sitting quiet. With your Savior in the morning, I'm going to look to Jesus again. I'm going to look to Jesus again. Because notice this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Some of you are believers, and you started with Jesus. You're like, hallelujah, there's a Savior. He forgave me. You started with Jesus, but you've moved on to something else. You can't do that. You can't do that. He's the author and finished. You start with Jesus and you got to stay with Jesus. Stay, keep him the main thing. Keep him at the center. Keep him in view. Let him be the grid through which you see your circumstances and world. Author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Oh, we're going to get it again. Notice this passage that talks about how to fight, how to run, how to live, has Jesus all in the middle of it. Because here we go again in verse 3. For consider him. That word consider in the Greek is the word analogizomai. It's an accounting or a math term that meant this. Factor it in. Estimate. Contemplate. Consider. Ponder. Factor in Jesus. See, some of you are living life without factoring in Jesus. He's with you. He's for you. You're not alone. you got to keep factoring him. Consider him. Consider him. Not just your circumstances, not just the marriage you have, the kids you have, the job you have, the health you have, the country we have. Consider him. Because when you stop factoring him in, some really bad things start to happen. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Here's what happens. If you, if you take your eyes off of Jesus and you fixate on something else. If you stop factoring in your Savior who's with you, for you, in it. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Oh, you guys, it's one thing to be physically tired that a good night's rest will fix. It's something altogether worse when you're weary in your soul. And here's what I want you to understand. That word weary in the Greek is the word kamno that literally meant sick. If you take your eyes off Jesus and you begin to fixate on something else, want something else, build your world around something else, promote something else, you'll end up with a sick soul. You will sour. You'll sour 
Some of you are Christian, but you've got a sick soul. You've soured because you've taken your eyes off Jesus. You're making much of something else, lest you become sick. Oh, and that word discouraged. Wow. In the Greek, it's a word that meant to, to have an unstrung bow. That was one of their main weapons, a bow. You take the bow and you just clip the string. Is it still a bow? Is it useful? Can you do what it was designed to do? He's telling us you were designed to thrive, even in a broken world, with joy and peace and purpose to love him and love others. Not perfectly, but just radically different than unbelievers. But when you take your eyes off Jesus and you fix it on something else in this world, when you push up onto the altar of your heart something else, even a good thing like kids or marriage or career or work or you will be frustrated. You'll you'll think, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? You're an unstrung bow. You can't do what you were designed to do and you've got a sick soul. Oh, listen to me. When you begin to not just recognize idols of the heart, but repent, you'll start to get free and be able to live the Christian life so much better. Because remember, idols blind you. You don't see everything you should see. It skews your perspective. And they bind you. They, they entangle you. They enslave you. They blind you and bind you so that you cannot live effectively and you will stay frustrated and devastated. Frustrated and devastated. Frustrated. Saying, what is going... And here's how it starts to sound. You start saying, why is life so hard? It's just so hard. Now, there's no way to avoid trials. You're going to have trials. But oh, when you go through the trials with your eyes fixed in the wrong place with a sick soul and an unstrung bow heart, it's more than you can bear. And you're like, it's just so hard. It's so hard. And then you start saying things like, Christian life doesn't work. Christian life doesn't work. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Some of you have actually been saying, what's missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? Let me tell you this. It's not what you're missing. It's what's present in your life that shouldn't be there. Consider that. You're not missing anything. Does every believer have the Holy Spirit? Does every believer have now illumination and understanding to God's word that they lacked before? Does every believer, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, have direct access to a throne of grace day or night with a high priest that intercedes for us saying, she's mine, he's mine? Yes. Yes. You have, I have everything we need. You're not missing something. It may be that there's something hugely present on the throne of your heart that should not be there. That's what's hanging you up. That's what's wrapped around you. That's what sickened your soul and unstrung your bow. And listen to me. I think it's interesting that Hebrews 12, I love metaphors and word pictures. I pay attention to that in the Bible because God's an amazing communicator. He gives us a running metaphor, right, for the Christian life. And so there's things worth taking note of. I already told you one of them, it's important where you fix your eyes as you run. Guess what else? And the runner's world knows this and understands this. You cannot run with clenched fists. Did you know that? Have you ever noticed a marathon, I mean, uh, sprinters exaggerate it. Pay attention next time you're watching the Olympics, and you will see not just the ginormous thighs. I always pay attention to that. Like, oh, my word, look at those thighs. 
Watch this. You will see like literally like this. Look for it. Get online and Google a sprinter. They run like this, exaggerated hands open. Why? Because they know when you, and, and the natural tendency is to clench your fist. It's wrong, your natural tendency. When you clench, you slow down and you wear out. You slow down and you wear out. You cannot run fast or far with clenched fists. Literally, coaches will shout from the sidelines sometimes, open your hands. Could it be, as you've been saying, I don't understand. God help me. God help me. God help me. But isn't it funny, when we pray, we usually know how we want it to be answered. Therefore, we're expecting a certain thing, and when it doesn't happen, we say he didn't hear us. Could it be that he heard you, and you're not hearing his answer, and he's been saying, fix your eyes on Jesus and open your hands. Fix your eyes. Consider, consider, has he been shouting, open your hands, and get your eyes off this, and back onto your Savior You have to fix your eyes on Jesus and run with open hands. So let me ask you today, where are your eyes? What do you look at the most? What do you just take in every week and you're obsessed over and you're consumed with? Where are your eyes and what's in your hands? Where are your eyes? What's in your hands? Where are your eyes? What's in your hands? A woman in our church Way back in 2012 when I first did a series on the heart like this. A woman in our church sent me this email. I have permission to read it. Sent me this email talking about the freedom. She used that word. Talking about the freedom that she was starting to feel. We were towards the end of the series. We're towards the end of the series this time also. She was talking about the freedom that she was starting to feel as she put to death some of her most treasured idols here's what she said to me let me just tell you how much god's grace has been poured out on me i finished up that series by literally putting a wooden cross down front and inviting everybody during an invitation time to identify their idols put them on a piece of paper and then take a turn coming down front and crunching that up and laying it at the foot of the cross and saying by god's grace i want to lay this down i want to lay this i'm gonna let it go i'm gonna let it go i'm gonna let it go She says, first of all, Sunday was amazing. It was so hard for me to walk up front and wait to leave my idols at the foot of the cross physically. I never noticed how I cling to them for pity and self-loathing. I began to realize, see, idolatry can begin to take over your identity. And it's like, this is who I am. This is not what I want and what I do. It's who I am, so it's hard to let go. She said, I began to realize, who am I without these And so after I crumpled my list of idols at the foot of the cross, I wasn't sure as I went and sat down what I was feeling. It was odd. I wanted to still worry and stress about my idols. And the big one is having to be adored and loved and cherished with tons of affection and attention from my husband. This one idol has crippled me. Most husbands will disappoint you. If you make them your main source of love and joy. If Jesus is your main source, they'll usually be adequate. Enough. C plus. But when you need it all from that man, be ready to be really disappointed. After I crushed my list of idols, I thought, maybe I'm feeling numb, empty, 
then God began to speak to my heart. It was peace. It was peace. I just hadn't felt it in so long. Peace that I can get all things I need from him. He's my husband. So notice she got it. It's not just to be killing idols. It's to cultivate and remember who your bridegroom is and to be intimately in love with him. Peace that I can get all things I need from him. He is my husband and lover of my soul. I can do all things through him. As these thoughts came flooding in, it was so freeing. And notice the word she uses next. And such an intimate and loving moment with my creator God. Listen to me. That intimacy you're longing for when you say, I just don't feel close to God. I don't understand. The answer won't be colored pencils and a new study Bible and better worship music. Listen, when you begin to repent of idols of the heart, there's a possibility of intimacy and closeness and love with your God through our Savior Jesus that you've never tasted before. She said, an intimate and loving moment with my creator God. What a wretched person I am. But thank God he's forgiven me and convicted my heart of my sin. I am free from my chains. Now, here's what I want to caution you. Could she, 18 months later, be right back where she was? Yeah. I hate to tell you yes. So it's like, it's never one and done, but oh, when you've tasted it, and when you're now aware of something you hadn't, it's an awareness. So I want us in this series to just have a fresh awareness. Some of you for the first time, but some of you are like, this is review, but you know what? I need to think about this again. So Brad Bigney, as my top idols were identified 30 years ago, guess what? I have to still stay vigilant. I have an awareness that I didn't have, and I actually have a repentance plan that I've written down of new thinking, new actions, and scripture that goes with it. New thinking, new actions, and scripture that goes with it. Because if I let up and I hit cruise control, I will shift or drift back to those same things. But I have a plan. Oh, listen, some of you still desperately need the freedom she's talking about. And it's on the other side of what you fear so much. But who am I without this? Will I get what I want? Will I be deeply satisfied? Will I? You will. Your flesh lies to you and our enemy Satan says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do it. Do it. Number two. Oh, listen. You'll have, you'll have a revival of gratitude for the gospel all over again. If, if that has fallen flat on you, like the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for me, when you begin to understand the depth of your own sinful heart with the sin beneath the sin, then you realize even more how awful you are and therefore how wonderful your Savior is. Glorious, glorious. Oh, he saved me. He saved me. He saved me. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. When you start to repent of idols of the heart, you will be even more grateful for the gospel because you'll see even more your great need for it and how desperately you need an incredible power outside of yourself to rescue you. And he did it for us. I had to be rescued from me. I had to be rescued from my own heart and desires. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes flooding in in a fresh New way so that you're able to say with the Apostle Paul, for I am not ashamed 
of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that can save you and start this new walk. Listen, it's the same power that you need to break the stranglehold. To break those sins that have wrapped themselves around you. That tumorous, idolatrous sin that's wrapped around you. Listen to me. The same gospel that changed your eternal destination. God did not intend to just see that you end somewhere different. Yes, that's glorious. He intended for you to live with greater freedom now. now. You'll be so much more attractive to other people when they'll say, what do you have? What, they won't see perfection, but they'll see a peace and a joy. And they'll recognize, she doesn't have a great marriage. She's, she's got health issues. Her job is not that great. What do you have I don't have? And we begin to, 1 Peter 3.15 Give a reason, give an answer to people for the hope that we have because you're just experiencing something greater. Biblical counselor Ed Welch says this. We're talking about change, right? So this is an insightful comment. Don't get lost in your heart. The heart's a dark place. It can be really discouraging. We gotta go there, but look at me. Don't stay there. Go there, but move on through to your Savior and the gospel. He says it well. He says, the path of change goes through the heart and continues on to the gospel where God chose to most fully reveal himself in the death and resurrection of Christ, which is why we're not just killing idols. We're trying to cultivate intimacy and gratitude for Jesus and the gospel. So I want to take you back to Colossians 3 again to show you once again, just like Hebrews 12, This passage that's all about killing idols has Jesus right at the center of it. Again, Jesus. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. He's talking about you're a believer now. When he died, you died. When he was raised, you rose If you've been raised with Christ, ah, seek. It's in the imperative. Who has to do it? Say it louder. Yeah. You could keep right on chasing what you've been chasing. Don't. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Oh, set your minds on things that are above. Who has to do it? You do. Not on the things on earth. Don't fixate on kids, marriage, health, job, a cause, an idea. Don't fixate on anything else in this world. Why? Verse 3. For you have died. Oh, I love this. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, there's security, my friend. There's security. Don't make your security your marriage, your kids, anything else. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ who is, present tense, your life appears. He doesn't say when Christ who one day will be your life because right now so many other things are consuming you. Nope. Nope. Your goal should be, and you'll never do it perfectly, I want Christ to be my life. I've got to bring it back to Christ. I've got to bring it back to Christ. I want him at the center of my life. I want to be thinking about him throughout the day. I can't think about him throughout the day if I don't start the day with him. Hello. You start 
And when you do this and you form a habit of starting your day with Jesus, you will be, you'll be encouraged, my friend, how often your thoughts just go back to him. And you'll just talk to him. I just talk to him throughout the day. I just talk to him. Silly things, important things, and it becomes more and more normal that he's real. He's real. He's your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you're going to appear with him in glory. Now and only now, verse 5. So I got to set my mind on things above. I got to seek things that are above. I got to be making Christ my life. And then, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. Look at me. We've got Christians that know there's things in their life that are wrong. And they're just jumping in trying to put it to death. Just do it. Nike. Just do it. The Bible's not written that way. The Bible is not written in a just do it. He always reframes it around Jesus, who he is, and who you are. Now in light of who he is and who you are, and you're tasting that, now do this. But we keep trying to just do this. Just do this. Just, and then you say, it doesn't work. That just must be who I am. Well, yeah, it'll keep being who you are until you know who he is and who you are in him, and it's real. Then, because you have something better, does, does anybody want to give up something that you think is actually good until you know you have something better? Well, he's that better thing. Book of Hebrews. Book of, one of my favorite things about the book of Hebrews is that it uses the word better 13 times. We have a better high priest a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a better inheritance, better, better. When you know there's something better, then you can say no to your flesh and begin to put to death this thing that actually seems so good. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. That's our operative word in this series. That word desire in the Greek is epithumia that they translated craving, longing, anything that's strong enough that it motivates my behavior now. I live for this. I live for this. Watch out, he says. Put to death epithumia. It's interesting. He puts together epithumia, evil desire, and covetousness. That word covetousness is the Greek word pleonexia, from which we get our English word annex, which means you, you stretch out and I want more. I want more. I want. Here's, here's the dirty little secret about idolatry, you guys. It never satisfies. So you think, I thought this would do it, but I just don't have enough of it. I need more. I need more. And then you just get on that path, and it never ends. It's the lie. The annexing, I just need more. I just need more. I just need more. Longing, craving, and it doesn't satisfy. Then he sums it up by saying, this evil desire and covetousness at work together in you is, which is what? Idolatry. Idolatry. But notice, he doesn't just jump in and say, put to death sexual immorality. Work on these areas of your life. Do it. He gives us Jesus right in the middle of it. If he's not your life, if you aren't tasting and seeing that he's good, if he's not real to you, if you don't trust him, that he'll give you what you need and it will actually be better, you'll never let go. You'll never let go. Cultivate intimacy with Jesus. Don't just try to kill idols. Oh, make sure you don't get lost in the heart on this series. 
You're not done. Listen, you're not done until you're resting and rejoicing in your Savior and the power of the gospel. But let me give you a third thing, a fruit that you can expect to see more and more if you begin to repent. Number three, you might start to see relationships around you more clearly for the very first time in your life. Seeing more clearly as you begin to repent on a heart level, same wife, same husband, same kids, same job, same supervisor. They haven't changed at all. But you see them differently because you have not been seeing them clearly. Everything you have perceived about them is skewed and twisted by your own heart as you begin to look at them. You might begin to see others more accurately for the first time ever. That's why the Bible tells us to start with our heart. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Oh my goodness, start with what's going on with you. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye? But do not consider the plank that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Hey, let me remove the speck out of your eye. And look, a plank is in your eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see more clearly to remove the speck out of your brother. Do you know what so many of those planks are? Idols. Idols. Good things, and that's why we don't think it needs to be addressed, but isn't this a good thing to want to, isn't it a good thing? Isn't it, yeah, good things can become God things, and when they do, it's a plank and becomes a really bad thing for you and everybody around you, and it affects your relationship with God, distant. And it affects your relationship with other people. Conflict. Conflict. Disappointment. What's wrong with everybody? Disappointment. Coolness. Distance. And conflict. And some of your lives are characterized by this. Don't hear me saying if you begin to repent, every relationship will just be wonderful. But do hear me saying a lot of things could get better. A lot of things could get better. And oh... At least you'll be doing what you can do. You can only take care of you. You can only deal with you. But oh, you'll have a greater peace. And the goal is not just fix things. The goal is not just get what I want. The goal is become more like, say it, Jesus. As you begin to repent of idols, you will know him more. As you know him more, you will become more like him. It's a win. Oh my goodness, this is a win. First three to five years of our marriage, oh my word. When my heart was raging with the confusion of my own idols, I could not even see clearly to talk to Vicky about the ways I perceived, right, that she was sinning against me in our marriage. My perception was totally skewed and twisted, oh by the way, in my favor, right? Isn't that how we always do it? It's skewed and twisted in my favor, The idols of your heart, listen to me, same thing goes on with me, will blind you to your own sins and cause you to exaggerate and magnify the sins of others. You'll minimize your own, excuse it, say, well, that's just a, and you'll magnify and exaggerate the sins of others around you. So that inevitably, what starts to happen? You start to feel angry, mistreated, misunderstood, and sorry for yourself, focused, focused on how much everyone around you is disappointing and hurting you. That's where I lived with Vicky. She's such a disappointment. She's such a disappointment. She just keeps failing me. I don't have the right wife. I don't have, 
But the main factor, I mean, she's a sinner, yes. And good news, so that you'll know, I don't talk about her stuff, but she repented too. So I was not living with this perfect wife, and Brad had big problems. I did have big problems. But as I began to repent, I began to see her differently and appreciate her. And I began to love her. Oh, my goodness. Can you love someone when you are focused on your own heart and what you think you're not getting? No. When I began to love, she began to blossom and grow and change. And something really beautiful began to happen. But it started with my own heart. As I begin to say for the first time, oh, what sin am I bringing to the table? What, what, what am I bringing? What kind of heart am I bringing? And my thing is worse. I used to sit with Philippians 2. It's like, consider the needs of others more than yourself. Consider others, it literally says this, better. And I would sit there struggling. But what if they're not better? Because she's not. Am I supposed to pretend? Oh, how ugly, Right? You can, you can choose to see something and say, oh my goodness, that's so much better than me. That's, what was I focused on? The things that are my areas that I think I'm strong and she's weak there. And so that's all I focused on. But he brought us together. She's got strengths off the chart ahead of me. And now, praise God, I've spent more than 30 years learning from her and becoming more like her Because I stopped seeing her as just a big disappointment. Let me give you a fourth fruit you can anticipate. Number four, you'll have a better perspective on trials and suffering. Don't hear me saying you'll love it and it'll be fun. But oh my goodness, you'll have a better perspective on how God uses it. So that you don't just say, oh God, no, not now, not this, not. And you can instead say, okay God, here we go. Here we go. I am scared. The last big trial that we faced was Vicky with transverse myelitis in 2017. Trust me, my heart at first leapt with fear. And the next thought was the Holy Spirit saying, I'm in it with you and I'm up to something good. I'll use it for good. And I said, okay, God, this is her still in the ER. She can't move. She's paralyzed. I don't know that she'll ever walk again. But, oh, it was sweet. And as you form a habit of knowing everything that comes into my life comes through through my father's hands first. It's father filtered and he's in it and he's up to something good. It changes how you face trials and suffering. And very often, it's just the process of causing you to let go of something you were clinging to that you never should have been clinging to. I feel like now the, the aging process and the process of becoming more like Jesus through the years is just... It's just a constant letting go and a letting go and a letting go. And he's, 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 he's good. He does not overwhelm us. So he'll just point out one thing. And then you think, good, we're good to go. And then he's like, now let's work on this. Oh, now let's work on this. Now let's go back here because you reach back and you grab this again. Didn't we not deal with that? Yeah, we did, Lord. Well, put it down. Right? It's, this is how it works. It's like, oh, he's good. He just sheds enough light to like, all right, here we go. Here we go. In the late 1600s, Samuel Rutherford was a godly pastor who spent two years in prison for preaching the gospel. Two years in prison because it was illegal to preach the gospel. And he says it was there in that prison that he made the great discovery of the source of enduring happiness. Don't we always, we all want happiness. We all want joy. How can I get it and really have it? It seems so elusive. 
This is a shocking but very insightful statement. He says, it was there in that prison I discovered the source of enduring happiness. He says this, if God told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then he had told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment. Being in prison removes you from a lot of the usual sources of enjoyment. I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet, how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. You understand what he's saying? It's not fun, but very often, you guys, and God is not mean. God is not capricious. He's the most loving, best father ever. But he's willing for our own good because he wants us to have what we were designed to really experience and have. He'll blow out some of your little lamps. He's like, I never meant for you to be bowing down there. And you keep saying, I don't have enough light. I don't have real joy. What am I missing? What am I missing? He's like, you're not missing anything. But you're in the wrong place. You're bowing down to the wrong place. So often that's us, you guys, bowing down to the flickering little lamp of our children, our marriage, our hobbies, career, image, status, stuff. All the while, there's a greater more glorious light. But he knows we'll never turn to it. We won't turn to it until he first blows out some of our little lamps. John Piper says this in commenting on this quote from Rutherford. John Piper says, Oh, how I pray that when God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Some of you have been cursing the wind, saying, this is not what I asked for, God. This doesn't answer my prayer. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? God, in his mercy, will sometimes blow out some of our little lamps so that we can then turn to the greater light that he was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul talked about, we have this treasure, Jesus, the gospel, in earthen vessels. Oh, listen to me. Do you have that treasure today? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? But then, believer, I want to push it further. Are you still treasuring Jesus? Or is he just a speck in your rearview mirror because you've moved on to other things? You've moved on. Something else is your treasure. Has that real treasure been clouded over by the light of your little lamps? Did you start with Jesus, but... Without realizing it, have you shifted and drifted to something else? Could that be why you're so frustrated and devastated? Frustrated and devastated. Number five, when you begin to repent on a heart level, oh, now this might sound odd to some of you, you'll start to feel more conviction of sin. You're like, that's not a great stocking stuffer, Brad. I don't, I don't want that. Oh, you do, my friend. You do. 
Do you realize you don't want just a vague, just superficial, I feel vaguely guilty about some of the things I do. That's a gross way to live. Because here's the deal. When you feel real conviction over your sin, you taste real amazing grace. Oh, oh. And then you have grace to extend to others around you. We can't live without grace. I need to take in like a runner takes in carbs before a marathon. I got to take in as much grace as I can to do the Christian life. When you feel deep, real conviction over sin, I'm not talking about wallowing and beating yourself up and saying, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. I'm talking about an appropriate, deep conviction of sin that quickly causes me to look to my Savior and say, and that's why I have a great Savior, and I taste grace. And that changes how you live life. Mm. You think about it. Vaguely guilty over your sin gets you nothing. Broken. Broken. Do you realize the Bible talks about some sweet things related to real brokenness and contriteness? Psalm 34.8. God draws near to the vaguely guilty. What's it say? Brokenhearted. Oh, when you're truly broken over your sin, he's near. He draws near. He's ready to be intimate with you. And then all... Isaiah 66 is one of my favorite places in the Bible every year as I read through the Bible. It's like, oh my goodness, look at that. We know God is omniscient. He sees all, knows all. But here's a verse that says, what causes God to ever pause? What gets his his attention? He says, look at that. He's going to tell you. God says, but on this one will I look. Who does he look? Where, Where does he stop? On him who is humble and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. The word contrite means sorrowful, deeply sorrowful and grieved over your sin so that you don't just wallow, you long for a solution. You long for a solution and you look to a savior. You long for a solution and you look to a savior This gets you God's attention. Humility and contrition. Humility. God draws near. James 4, 6. God resists the who? Proud. I don't need to change. It's everybody around me that needs to change. There's nothing wrong with me. My sin's little. All right? God is against you. God resists the proud, but gives. Got to have grace. like Like a marathon runner has to have carbs. Gives what? To who? The humble. Oh, my goodness. When you're convicted over sin in a deeper way, in a real way, oh, you're in a position now to taste grace like never before, to get to know your Savior and fall in love with him and appreciate him like never before. Francis Fenelon states this well. Uh, He was the chaplain for, I think, King Louis XVI in France. And he had some insights. I like reading him. He says this, as the inner light increases. So we're in a series right now where light is being thrown inward on our heart. If you're not careful, it can just be debilitating and you just wallow saying, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. That's never what God's looking for us to do. So listen to what he says. As the inner light increases, you will see the imperfections which you have heretofore seen as basically much greater and more harmful than you'd seen them up to the present. In other words... You're going to think yourself even worse than you did before. But don't stop. Don't stop. 
But this experience, far from discouraging, will help to uproot all your self-confidence and to raise, R-A-Z-E, as in burn it to the ground. Raise to the ground the whole edifice of pride. Nothing marks so much the solid advancement of a soul as this view of his wretchedness without anxiety and without discouragement. Now, do you know how to own the depth of your sinfulness and then not be discouraged and anxious about it? You can only do that based on knowing to look to Jesus quick next. You never just stay with seeing your own, and then you look at Christ. I don't remember who it was. I don't know if some famous dead guy. But he said, for every look inward, take 10 looks at Jesus. That's good counsel. Yeah, I want to see it, but I don't want to stay there and wallow there. I want to see it and say, oh, that's why I have a Savior. That's why I have a Savior. That's why I have a Savior. What about you? Are you seeing yourself more sinful? But can you deal with it without discouragement because you're also seeing your Savior and the glory and power of the gospel? Oh, listen to me. As you get free and begin to, for a lifetime, put to death idols of the heart, you will start to experience, maybe for the first time, a level of freedom and joy and peace and purpose that doesn't leave you wallowing and paralyzed, unable to get past it. Listen to me. Would you be willing to get honest? To get honest about the idols of your heart and say, God, I really want to see it. And then would you be willing to go to war against them for a lifetime, for a lifetime. As we close, I want you to bow your heads. Bow your heads. And I want you to simply lay your hands, open palms up in your lap. Lay your hands, open palms up and say, God, I'm ready to see what maybe I've never seen before about my own heart. Show me. And I'm ready to do what maybe I've never done. Let go of the idols I've been clinging to so that I can experience something better and so that I can love you, know you better, and love others better. Oh, God, help me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.